Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Dineski, and today I spoke with Parth Aya, the co-founder of a Timaka project. Timaka works hand-in-hand with rural communities, specifically in Africa, to tackle hunger and malnutrition. The problem it is addressing is post-harvest food insecurity arising from farmers being forced to sell their crops right after the harvest, leaving them with no food or money as the year goes on. Timaka helps these farmers by providing post-harvest loans and food storage so that they can spread the benefits of a harvest over the full year. Timaka is a great nonprofit that is making a huge impact, and I think you'll really enjoy learning about their work. Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I'm speaking with Parth Aya, the co-founder of a Timaka project. Parth, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to begin, can you tell us about yourself and your background? Sure. So where to start? <laughs> I grew up in the States. Uh, parents uh, migrated to South Florida from India. So, you know, spent the first 18 years of my life uh, in South Florida in a little suburb. 40 minutes outside of downtown Miami, got interested in making a difference and improving the world um, in high school, um, had some really inspirational teachers um, and tried my hand at like a number of kind of social pro- projects, you know, most of which uh, kind of fell flat on their face, but uh, taught me a lot. Uh, and yeah, I started this organization, the Taimaka Project, uh, in my second year of undergrad, uh, and this is the one that seems to have, have had the most momentum so far. Um, it's been a few years. We have scaled up quite drastically. So grew from a team of, uh, you know, just the two of us, you know, myself and, and, and Justin um, to now, you know, over 40 people um, that we employ uh, in the U.S. and Nigeria and thousands of folks uh, that we're serving. So um, it's been quite the journey and uh, yeah, hoping to, hoping to keep it going. And so can you tell us about Taimaka's mission and specifically the problem that rural farmers experience as they get further through the time of the annual harvest? Yeah, absolutely. So we started the organization kind of with a pretty broad aim, which is, you know, to save or improve people's lives as much as we could with every dollar we spent. Um, And for listeners who are kind of familiar with effective altruism, that phrase might sound familiar. So that was this like really high level kind of mission, which, you know, doesn't really help much with the question of, well, what do we actually do? Um, and so, you know, how did we get from that really abstract principle of, you know, how can we help as much as we can with limited resources to like, here's what we actually do. Um, I think there were a few things that we did. So, you know, one is kind of consulting with the academic literature. So looking at what works to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty on less than $1.90 a day, uh, But that kind of just gets you part of the way because a lot of things work, as it turns out. And then, you know, the kind of second question is, well, what has the highest return? So, you know, academic papers will tell you, well, what's the effect size of doing X? But an important piece is also, well, what does it cost to do X? And when you match those two up, then you get a cost-benefit ratio. And that's, you know, something that you can work with uh, to kind of compare between hundreds of kind of potential options that you have for programs that you could implement. After kind of going through, you know, step one of consulting evidence, step two of looking at cost effectiveness analysis, you get down to like dozens of interventions that look extremely promising, um, 
you know, as ways to improve people's lives cost effectively. So you have everything from, you know, health interventions like bed nets for malaria or deworming for, for intestinal worms or conditional cash transfers to increase the rate of infant immunizations. And what all these kind of different programs have in common is that at least on paper, relative to the cost of the program, um, the benefits are extremely high, uh, making them really promising. But there's a third and really important piece, which is, will this actually work in our context? So people talk a lot about evidence, people talk a lot about cost effectiveness, um, but in a really important third concept is external validity. So yeah. does your study that you did in Kenya, um, which is you know where the evidence for our intervention came from, actually scale up to northeastern Nigeria, which is a very, very different context? Um, and so everything that looks good on paper could fall apart um, if there are important differences between the context where a program was studied and a context where you're working. And so I think a big question that kind of broadly is, is confronting uh, the community of kind of evidence-based global health and development is, well, how do we address this problem of external validity? Well, countries are different, states are different, yeah. regions are different, and our evidence really only in the best case uh, speaks super clearly to a small portion of the, you know, the total population. So the third thing we do is talk to people. So you know, survey folks in communities um, and, and understand whether a program is likely to work. And so that was the kind of process that we followed, which led you know, to the program that we've implemented for the last three years, which is post-harvest credit and storage. So the problem there is that you know, in a lot of rural communities in sub-Saharan Africa, individuals struggle to hold on to their crops after they harvest them. Uh, and the reason is you know, there's one harvest a year uh, through kind of rain-fed agriculture. And by the time in, you know, families get to the following year's harvest, they've sold all their crops, they have kind of limited non-farm income. And so they face this immediate pressure of, you know, you have school fees to pay, you have, you know, the actual cost of harvesting itself. I mean, as such, you know, uh, they end up selling their crops really early. And the consequence of that is that um, not only do, do, you know, folks struggle with seasonal food insecurity, but they also miss out on, you know, an opportunity to earn considerably more. Because as you can imagine, with this pattern of, of crop production, um, prices vary considerably. Yeah. So for example, in Gombe, where we work, you know, the price of maize goes up by an average of 66%, uh, mm. you know, every year. And so that's quite a big opportunity for farmers. And so what we do to try to unlock that opportunity is deliver post-harvest loans, which help farmers hold on to their crops um, and also um, storage bags, because another reason why you might be pressured to sell your crops early is because you're scared, rightly, that you might lose them to, to pest or rodents or uh, theft. Um, and, uh, you know, we can't help with that last piece, but we can at least help with the first two by providing farmers with really good, um, robust storage bags. So that was, you know, kind of what we stumbled on is something which kind of hit all of these sweet spots. So kind of running through them, you know, it was very well evidenced. Um, you know, there were two randomized control trials which is kind of the gold standard in, in, in social science, um, you know, for, for evidence, um, they were really cost effective. So, you know, our best guess was that post-harvest loans generate between two and three dollars for every dollar that we invest in them. Um, so we deliver the loans at yeah. a loss and kind of looking at our net loss on a post-harvest loan and looking at the expected benefit uh, to a farmer, that was kind of what we found. Um, and that's really good. And then finally, you know, talking to people in, in rural communities in, in Gombe, what we found was that, yeah, this was a, a really big problem for them. Um, I mean, it was like, yes, this is, this is you know, a huge problem for us. And, and we wish we could hold on to our crops and sell them later. And that was something we heard over and over again. So that was, you know, kind of the process through which we got started. And now, excitingly, you know, we're, we're starting to build on that. So um, we've just launched a new program to complement our post-harvest credit and storage program based on those same principles, um, which is the community management of acute malnutrition. So 
yeah, really excited to talk about that too, but I'll, I've talked a lot, so I'll stop there. <laughs> Great, and we'll definitely come back to a lot of those different things you touched upon, but first, can you kind of explain what this post-harvest credit process looks like, what kind of steps it entails? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's really simple. Um, we identify communities that need this product. Um, so, you know, we canvas local government areas, which are like counties for American listeners, and just talk to folks um, and understand, you know, which communities kind of have both a primary focus on maize, which has the highest seasonal price fluctuation, and also severe liquidity constraints, which is just a fancy way of saying that they have this challenge of not having money after the harvest, um, and as a result, feeling this immense pressure to sell their crops. And we try to find communities that have um, a really strong intersection of those two things, where people are receptive of what we're offering and the process from there is, is fairly straightforward. You know, individuals uh, in communities apply to, to receive post-harvest loans and go through a process of, you know, um, forming a group. And that's really important, um, you know, generally for, you know, when you're lending in communities where there isn't a credit history, like how do you get um, high rates of repayment? And, and one of the, the really effective ways to do that um, is to organize people into lending groups where all members have to repay in order for any member to receive another loan. And as a result, this kind of social pressure um, for everyone to repay, which helps. Great. And another similar type of question is, so what does the process look like for providing storage to farmers? Yeah, so um, the storage solution that, that we provide to farmers um, are, are called PIX bags, uh, Purdue Improved Crop Storage Bags. So back in the 80s, uh, there was a, a, a researcher, an agronomist from Purdue University, who was looking into um, crop failures um, and crop loss, rather, of cowpea in Cameroon. And, you know, what they found was that uh, the traditional kind of storage solution, which was, you know, typically a woven single layer bag, um, was inadequate to protect uh, cowpea harvest from uh, from pests. So over the last, you know, few decades, um, they've gone through multiple iterations now, gotten funding from the Gates Foundation. Uh, this fantastic team at Purdue University has developed this uh, triple layered hermetically sealed bag. So, you know, the same technology that, um, you know, that ancient Egyptians used to do mummification of, you know, hermetic storage of keeping, which just means, you know, keeping the oxygen out by having a lot of layering, um, turns out to be super effective at, at also keeping out pests and, and rodents because, um, you know, one thing that pests need to survive um, is oxygen and moisture. Um, and pigs bags, you know, provide that you dry your crops uh, really well beforehand are, are really effective at that. So it's a great team. They um, have, have, you know, uh, like I said, with support from the Gates Foundation, managed to set up manufacturing operations across the continent. And yeah, it's just it's a good example of technology that actually works and really improves people's lives, and, and people love them. So you know, what we've seen is that you know the first time we introduce picks bags, uh, and we and we you know require that that new clients take at least a few, people are kind of hesitant, and and the reason is you know picks bags are three times the cost of the, the market standard. So you know, reasonably, people are are skeptical that you know. Is this really worth three times what, what I'm paying otherwise? What we find is that the next year, uh, when, when people get their second loan, they request more picks. <laughs> um, and that's not always the case, but it's, it's more often the case um, than it isn't. And so that's like a really good indication that, you know, this is a, a technology that adds value for people. And also is, is kind of instructive in terms of when you have technologies that are, are valuable, but um, not immediately so in, in a way that's immediately perceptible, how do you get increased adoption? And one way to do it is to bundle um, useful technologies into credit products um, as, as a way of getting, you know, immediate and easier adoption instead of, you know, trying to sell them to people. 
And something else you addressed that I really wanted to talk about was trials and cost-effectiveness. And so I know that a lot of people who look to support a social program probably aren't aware that a lot of these programs can fail to produce any impact. And the best ones are not only one or two times more effective, but hundreds of times more effective. And so I know that you had these randomized controlled trials about post-harvest loans. And so can you just talk a little bit more about these trials and some of the results? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, but before I do that, I think there's another piece there of like, it might sound kind of crazy that like the best social programs are hundreds or even thousands of times more effective than the median. Um, and certainly, you know, randomized control trials and evidence can help us, you know, identify them. But there are a couple other really useful tricks um, for, you know, if, if, if you have the goal of improving people's lives as much as you possibly can, um, and you care about people, no matter what, no matter where they are geographically, like, you know, human being is human being, all lives have equal moral worth. One of the, the best things that you can do is focus on the worst off, um, which sounds very obvious to say, um, but is actually quite profound. Um, so, you know, in the US or in, in the typical OECD country, the poverty line is, is $30 a day. So the 15 or 20% of, of folks living in the US at or, or below the poverty line are kind of hovering around living on you know about thirty dollars a day. Um, conversely, you know uh, about forty percent of folks um, living in sub-Saharan Africa are living on a dollar ninety a day, which is less than a, a fifteenth of, yeah. of the, the American poverty line. Um, and so, simply by focusing your efforts on improving the lives of, of people living in extreme poverty, and it's really it's hard to express what what a difficult circumstance this is. And, and it's one experienced, fortunately, by a minority of people and a, and a declining minority at that. So um, in the 1980s, about a third of, of human beings lived in extreme poverty. Uh, and now, you know, if, if I'm remembering correctly, it's below a tenth. Um, so, uh, you know, COVID obviously, um, unfortunately, shot that back up mm-hmm. in, in places like India and, and Nigeria. But by focusing your efforts on, on improving the lives of people living in extreme poverty, you've already kind of gotten off to a fantastic start. Um, and, and that's great. Uh, so then, you know, that's that's a great step one for like how can we how can we do the most good per dollar? And one way to do it is just you know let's focus on improving the very worst off people's lives. I think, as you mentioned, a second thing you can do is you know even among programs that are that are aimed at improving the lives of people living in extreme poverty, it turns out that the best are are hundreds of times better um, than the median. Then and, and the median is an important thing, not not than the worst, but then you know the ones that actually like if you were watching these programs in action, you'd say, wow, this is amazing. Um, this is like really improving people's lives. Like, for example, a program that really, if you if you see it in action, it's, it's extremely moving. Are unconditional cash transfers? So, literally, just giving money to people living in extreme poverty. It turns out, you know, they largely spend it on useful things like housing and food and investing in businesses, and 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 almost entirely do not spend it on on, on other things. And, and it improves their lives a lot. And if you see it in action, it's incredibly inspiring. And you know, one of the insights of GiveWell, which is a charity evaluator that kind of compares different charities, is that it turns out there are actually some programs which are 10 times better than getting people cash. Yeah. Um, and so even things that like viscerally appear to be really just the most fantastic thing in the world can be outperformed by, by you know, 10 times. And the way that we can try to identify those, you know, 99th percentile um, interventions um, is by using evidence, I think. So that's something that we did when we were, you know, looking at post-harvest credit is we, we looked at kind of evidence and, and what we found was that, you know, in a couple different contexts in, in Kenya and in Tanzania, um, post-harvest loans 
uh, generated these really high net returns. Um, so, you know, after farmers repaid the loan, um, they earned 29% and 40% more, respectively, um, than folks who didn't receive the loan. And so, you know, if you take that um, and then you do the cost effectiveness piece, which is, well, how much does it cost to, 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 to deliver these loans? That process um, is extremely powerful. Um, and it means that, you know, I mean, that's the difference between saving 100 or saving 1,000 lives or increasing people's incomes by 100 or $1,000. And we, unfortunately, you know, we're in a world where we have limited resources, you know, to, to address these problems. Uh, and it's important that we increase, you know, the amount of resources that go towards um, improving the lives of the worst off. But to the extent that we have that constraint of not having, you know, unlimited money, um, but, but a finite amount of money to improve people's lives with, these considerations become all the more important. Yeah, definitely. And I definitely resonate to that idea where a life in a country farther away from you is not less important than local. So you really should be doing what's most effective. And clearly you're doing a lot of great work. And so I just wanted to know if you can discuss actually how you've seen some of the significant impact that you solving this issue has had. So what are some of the positives to your work? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, we see it every day. You know, we talk to clients who really, um, in, in that moment, feel that their lives are, are transformed by the opportunity to do um, intertemporal arbitrage, you know, holding on to their crops and selling them later. And it's just, it's just great to see. And, and I think, you know, this is particularly the case for um, our female clients. Because in addition to, you know, being able to hold on to their crops, sell, sell them later and earn more, and this kind of hints at how, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of numbers here, about 100x and 1,000x, um, and less about stories. But those can be important, too, and, and conceal some important things. So, you know, women also get a 29 40% return. But in addition to that, they get increased agency. Uh, you know, a common refrain that we hear is, I can now buy small things without asking for permission. And so some things, you know, of moral importance and value um, aren't captured by kind of simple cost-effectiveness analysis. And that's not a reason not to do cost-effectiveness analysis, because I think probably 80% of the really important things are captured by it, but that 20% can make a, a really big difference. Um, and so, you know, that's represented, you know, pretty well in, in, in the difference we see between how our male clients talk about the impact of, of post-service credit versus how female clients talk about post-service credit. Yeah, it's definitely important, I feel, to look at the numbers and the global aspect, but also see the effect that has on particular individual or community. And so thank you for that. And just really, how can those who want to help best do so? Yeah, so, you know, um, I'd love to, you know, quickly plug a very new uh, program. And it's, I guess this is, you know, we're announcing it. Um, and it hasn't even been, been made public yet. So I suppose that this podcast <laughs> is the, the forum for us to do so. So we... Um, a few months ago, or really, you know, for, for some time, but really substantively a few months ago, started chatting with some colleagues um, in uh, the Gombe State Government, uh, which is which is where we work, about how, you know, we can collaborate and do more together. And a very adjacent issue um, to the one that we work on um, is the issue of child malnutrition. So in the worst cases of seasonal food insecurity, what you have is kids uh, who, as a result of not getting enough to eat, or not getting enough of the right things to eat, um, end up suffering from acute malnutrition. So about a million kids um, a year die as a result of acute malnutrition. Um, in Gombe State, uh, where we work, there's an estimated uh, 35,000 cases 
And as of now, not a single one of those cases um, gets treatment. Um, so, you know, you have on again and off again international funding from, from major donors and likewise kind of sporadic involvement uh, from the government. And so this government uh, is really enthusiastic to try to solve this problem. Um, and it turns out, you know, kind of going back to the cost-effectiveness piece, that directly treating acute malnutrition is, you know, one of the most cost-effective ways to save a life. Um, so our estimate is that by the World Health Organization's kind of standards yeah. for cost-effectiveness, uh, directly treating acute malnutrition is very cost-effective. I mean, finally, you know, given our uh, presence across the state, you know, so, I mean, we are present in every local government area in the state. We are really well positioned uh, to implement this program, which is, you know, largely just constitutes training individuals in the community to identify cases of acute malnutrition and then treating them by providing eight to 12 weeks of uh, therapeutic food. And there are some other parts, but that's pretty much the majority of it. Um, and so this month, the end of the month, we'll be launching a program treating uh, 2,700 kids for acute malnutrition, along with our post harvest credit and storage program. Um, and we'll be doing that with uh, support from from some fantastic donors uh, that's worth mentioning. So U.S. Agency for National Development, um, Founders Pledge, um, and a slew of um, individual supporters who are you know, too many to name, uh, but we appreciate them all. I think the ways that individuals can help, obviously, you can donate, um, and, and that's a great thing to do. I think, you know, the other thing is that we're hiring. Um, and so we are actively looking for amazing people, you know, to come work with us and push forward with this mission, um, which is we've got a great process here and a great mission. You know, our mission is to save or improve people's lives as much as we can. And we have a process that's extremely grounded in truth. And so we are open to the possibility that what we're doing isn't working and changing course. Um, and I think that makes us unique. We are happy to say, you know, so for example, this year we're collaborating with academic economists at Stanford and Berkeley to evaluate our post-harvest credit and storage program. If we find out that it doesn't work well, we will stop doing it. And so really all we care about is, you know, doing the right thing um, and we're okay to, to get it wrong. Um, and I think it'd be great if uh, we could get, you know, more, more uh, talented people working with us towards that mission. So we, you know, you can, you can both donate and explore uh, some of the opportunities that we're hiring for uh, through our website. Uh, that's timaka.org, uh, T-A-I-M-A-K-A.org. You can also just email me. We are uh, a sufficiently small organization that, uh, we can still do that. So my email is parth, uh, P-A-R-T-H, uh, at timaka.org. Very happy to, uh, to chat to anyone who's uh, interested in supporting our work um, in any capacity. Nice. And so lastly, is there anything that you'd like to add or reiterate about Timaka Project or really anything in closing thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, just uh, doubling down on we're hiring. Um, <laughs> really, you know, I, maybe to say, to say more uh, about that, I think, you know, we are now at a stage where we um, have a, a great kind of um, array of funders and supporters who are, who are committed to helping us scale our work. Um, we have, you know, a good kind of on the ground operation. And the question that we are reckoning with now is what does growth look like? Um, so how do you go from improving the lives of a thousand people, 10,000 people, to 100,000 people, to a million people? And we're kind of open to a number of different ways, you know, that can happen. So like one obviously is kind of directly scaling up ourselves and, you know, we intend to do that, but there, there's obviously a limit on that. Um, and the more we expand, uh, the more we kind of go outside of where our comparative advantage is, which is really, you know, 
working in this one region of this one country. I mean, so in terms of how do you get the great things that you're doing, you know, scaled up globally, we're kind of really excited about policy too. You know, how can we engage, you know, some of the bigger players, the U.S. Agency for International Development, which has, you know, $20 billion annual budget. Um, and how can small but innovative organizations like, like us, um, you know, play more of a role in shaping, you know, how the U.S. government does foreign assistance. And so we are looking for um, individuals who can help us think about that um, strategically and, and kind of chart a path towards growth. Um, and so if you think you're that person, uh, or even if you don't think you're that person, you still might be, I guess, just doubling down on talent is really one of the biggest constraints for us at the moment. Um, and so would really uh, appreciate, you know, even referrals to folks who you think might be a good fit. So thank you so much for coming on, and I really do appreciate your time, and I'm sure that a lot of listeners will be interested in this. Great. Thank you so much.